from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغز ها که پوسیدن It's a song by male singer Sherwin Hajiya Ghafoor that's become the most evocative song about the ongoing protests in Iran. But it's also a sign of how what started as a protest over women's rights has grown into something much bigger. The song Baroe Azadi like many other Iranian songs that have emerged since the protests began are about everything that the people are protesting against in Iran. The Iranian people showing a bravery that we have never seen before and I have uh, talked with my friends and they say women have a self-confidence that um they've never seen it before and part of it is because they are fed up it's been 40 years of oppression and especially the new generation is like we are done with this we rather die than live with this kind of humiliation so they are in the streets every day day after day the protests happened in iran before we've seen in 2009 we've seen 2018 2019 but the government was was able to squash the protest because once they brought the guns out and you know once they arrested people people went back home this is different and not only you know uh, we see a difference in the resistance we also see all sort of people in the street all sort of ethnicities are in the street young and old people are in the street men and women are in the street students are in the street um high school students are in the street and then you see the retirees now we have the um, oil refinery workers on the strike so this is huge for iran and this is new Elna Sarbar who you just heard is a women's rights activist who's based in the US. Elna's grew up in Iran but immigrated to the US in her 20s. The protests in Iran are estimated to have claimed at least 200 lives so far. The protests began in September after the death of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini. She had been detained by the country's morality police allegedly because her hair was showing from under the mandatory scarf. protests and the crackdown on protesters have only grown in intensity over the past 4 weeks in today's episode my colleague alka dubkar speaks with elna sarbar about growing up in iran while she was opposed to the hijab the protests in the country and where the protests could go from here as claimed by the uh, human rights groups over 200 uh, deaths including 28 children have been reported in the demonstrations started last month islamic government is using ammunition against unarmed citizens uh, what is your take on that it's it's very heartbreaking the image that that comes from iran is is gruesome and i want to add here that this number is despite all the government's effort to put a lid on what's happening really inside iran they kind of like cutting off the internet they're filtering social messaging apps there were two apps that were uh, still open in Iran WhatsApp and Instagram and they have already been closing those apps as well um in addition to that 
what the government is doing is like when they issue death certificates for the people who have died, instead of saying that somebody uh, was shot and, and died because of that, they write um, the death um, reason, something like um, a, a hard object was hit in the head. And on top of that, they threaten the families that if you speak speak with the media, we're going to arrest you. There was um, this uh, case of uh, Nika uh, Shakarami. Uh, I'm not sure if your listeners have heard about it. It was a 16-year-old girl. She calls uh, a friend on the way back from work, and she says, I've joined the protest. I've, I've burned my scarf, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. And um, she has been followed. She disappears uh, for 10 days. Her family uh, put up basically a missing person ad. Uh, and then they go to um, Kahrzak prison where she was kept three times and they can't find it. So eventually after 10 days, um, um, she, they, they receive a phone call that come and collect her body. And her body was smashed. Her nose was broken. Her, her um, bones are broken. Um, and the family actually identified her by yeah, a birthmark, which is really sad. After that, um, her aunt and uncle were arrested. Uh, her aunt is released right now, but they were arrested. So the, the government really um, tries to pressure people not to speak about that. So I think what we see in terms of numbers is going to be much lower than uh, what actually is happening. Uh, but it's very heartbroken. You know, people are not armed. They actually just come to the street unarmed and they've been hit by uh, pallet guns. They've been hit by real ammunition. They've been hit by tear gas. The images that come is brutal in terms of the physical violence that we see. Could you tell us some famous slogans like dead to the dictator and others, how powerful they are? Oh my God, this this is like what Iranians want. And after 40 years, they're finally able to say it out loud. And it's empowering for them to finally being able to say, okay, we, we are fed up with this government and, and we want this government out. Um, Death to Dictator is a very pro prominent uh, um, by everyone. Um, the students say it, the people say it everywhere. But there's also Death to Khamenei specifically to, to, the, to the Supreme Leader himself. There is uh, I'm saying in Persian because I know there's like some um, common words between Persian and Hindi. And that is like um, tanks, um, cannons and um, exploding stuff. And we want the, the, the mullahs to be gone. Um, and then, of course, this is the women's revolution. So one um, a slogan that we heard everywhere was Zanzendegi uh, Azadi. Um, women, life, freedom. And uh, that is actually the heart of this protest that started by death of a woman over um, Maso Amini, which probably there, everybody heard about it uh, in the news at this time. Um, she was um, arrested by the morality police because um, some of her hair was shown and she died in custody. About a few hours later, she was dropped at a hospital where she died two days later. 
it's not very clear that what happened there because Islamic Republic tried to keep a lid on it, but because of the leaked uh, CAT scans that showed fracture on her skull because of the pictures of um, her showing her, uh, she was bleeding from her ears. We know that she was brutally beaten and, and that was the cause of her death. The Iran government has been attempting to suppress protests abroad and on social media. Uh, so while they may have had some initial success, how successful do you think they will be in the long run? Yeah. Well, um, the the great thing is a this um, in addition to the change that we see inside Iran, we also see a change outside Iran in the Iranians who are abroad and they are also loud and they are actually reflecting the sound of Iranian people inside Iran. So for many years, the Islamic Republic had, um, I would say its mouthpieces placed in a media outside Iran to be able to push their own narrative about what's happening inside Iran. And now it's getting to the point that, you know, the rest of Iranians are trying to be vocal and trying to actually raise um, other points and say, actually, this is not the truth. For example, for many years, a lot of people said, oh, hijab is your culture. We're not going to meddle in that issue. While if hijab is our culture, why the government needs to spend so much money and have a morality police to enforce it? Um, So that kind of narratives are being changed by um, other Iranians at this point. And I think the images that are coming from inside Iran, they tell the story themselves in addition to what other Iranians can add to that to try to correct the narrative, I would say. But at the same time, like at the beginning, there was a narrative, oh, this is not sustainable. And now, you know, it's like being almost a month and we see it's going. And then there was like, oh, this is all about hijab, which at this point, it's not about hijab anymore. At this point, the demand of the people is to have Islamic Republic itself gone. It is not only about hijab. Of course, hijab issue triggered the protest. But now it is also about poverty, corruption and mismanagement. People of Iran are protesting against everything. What was it to live in Iran for the last 40 years? Oh, my God. (laughs) You said it like, you know, the mismanagement, uh, for example, that you mentioned is about water. There are cities in Iran that that have water, severe water issues. It's affecting Iranian people in everyday life and specifically women from the beginning, you know, because you deal with your oppression every day. And there's also um, ethnic minorities that are that are in oppression, like Kurdish people, Azerbaijani, Baluchis. And I know like this is kind of relevant for you because in India, people speak in 400 languages. So I know in many, many schools, people like learn both languages and probably even three languages. Right. Um, but unfortunately, um, in Iran, um, the, the schools are all in Persian. So if, if you grow up in Azerbaijani, which is my dad is Azerbaijani, um, you go to school and all of a sudden you have to learn everything in Persian while you might have been speaking um, Azerbaijani at home or Kurdish at home or Baluchi at home. And there is no education um, in that regard. So 
ethnic minorities have been oppressed, the religious minorities have been oppressed, the Baha'is of Iran are not allowed to go to university. They can't get higher education. They can't get uh, government jobs. So like these kind of adds up beside the, the corruption and the supreme leader of Iran, the current one has been in power for 33 years with no accountability, with no transparency. And we see the results in, in our day-to-day life. Do you think that protesters' potential demands would be met? In which direction the protest is shaping up in Iran as we speak? Unfortunately not. The Supreme Leader came out and said this is um, a plot by U.S. and Israel. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you blind to the people who are coming in the street? And this is their actual demand. If you want to deny this, there is no resolution. There is no going forward with you if you are putting this, labeling this as a plot by a foreigner. So first of all, first thing to correct something is to accept that something is wrong and that's not happening. So I don't see this this regime um, um, backing down in anywhere. And I, and I think this is going to end up toppling this regime. You left the country when you were 28 and you said that you didn't want to raise a girl child in this country, I mean in Iran. What was your experience of being born and spending your childhood, teen and young years in Iran? So I was born after the Islamic Republic's revolution in 1980. So I lived all my life under the um, Islamic Republic and under the Sharia law. And it was not easy. Like as a woman, you are a second class citizen and you feel it very early. I actually have a brother. He's one year old younger than I am. So, you know, we grew up together. And then at some point I started seeing the difference. I was like, well, you can't do this. Why? Because you're a girl. Um, And that started with going to school. I had to wear a scarf starting the age of seven. And if I did not wear it, there was no... Um, there was no education for me. I couldn't get education. And um, it is interesting. I remember um, I was eight years old and um, me and my brother went to the same school. Schools were segregated. So girls went in the morning and boys in the afternoon. And then at some point the shift changed and my brother was six. So my mom sends me to the school and says, go to school, find a headmistress and tell her that your brother is, is sick. And it's winter, so I'm wearing a yellow jacket with a hat on it. And I was like, I'm wearing a hat, so I'm not going to wear a scarf. You know, I'm just covering my hair in like my own childish logic. I was like, I'm covering my hair. So I'm going, I go to school, find a headmistress, and I tell her, you know, my brother is uh, sick. He's not coming. And then she looks at me and she says, why aren't you at class? And then I was like, well, I'm a girl. And I'm coming in the afternoon. And she looks at me and I was like, why aren't you wearing a scarf? And I was like, well, I, I, I had a hat on. I covered my hair. And she's like, no, you can't do this. You have to come with, with a scarf. And I didn't like to do it. It was it, it was a hardship that I deal with every, every day. And on top of that, I want to add this in Iran. Beside having to wear hijab, a woman cannot sing and dance in public. You cannot... Uh, be judges or you can't be the president um, you your testimony worth half the testimony of a man you inherit half of what your brother inherits 
you don't have the custody of your children, so you can't go to bank and open a bank account for your child. So these are all very humiliating. And even as a child, I could understand this. And when I was in high school, I was like, I I don't want to bring another child. I don't want to bring another human being here. Uh, So I decided to leave. It took me a while to leave, but I eventually left. And um, my, my daughter is now 20 days old and I'm happy she was born in, in, in a, in a different country, but at the same time, I'm happy she was born as, as the revolution of the Iranian women is being born. So for me, it's just like a double happiness. When did you stop uh, using hijab? What was, uh, you said that you were asked to wear hijab. So what was the story is told to you as a child to make you wear hijab? Uh, well, <laughs> my family was not very religious, uh, so um, I only wore hijab because I was forced to wear hijab. I did not want to wear hijab ever in my life, um, starting when I was a kid. Even when I would travel outside Iran, uh, I, I, I did not wear a scarf. Sometimes in Iran, you know, me and my friend will just walk through the back streets when we were coming back from school and we take out our scarves. So I did not believe in it. I, I put, I took it out anytime I could. Actually, I was um, participating in a uh, White Wednesdays campaign. It's, it was a campaign run by uh, Iranian journalist Masi Ali Najad uh, in, I think, 2014. She started the campaign by publishing a picture of herself without the hijab and saying, if you feel the same way, publish a picture of yourself or a video of yourself doing the same thing, kind of encouraging the women to do social disobedience. And she received thousands and thousands of pictures of Iranian women that say, oh, we don't want this. And I actually have a video of myself um, in, in Tehran that I'm walking. This is in, I think, 2017, that I'm walking without um, hijab. I'm just traveling from you know, one of my friend's house in in north of Tehran using the subway without a scarf the whole way. And it's funny, some of the people just encourage me and say, oh, is it why it's Wednesdays? Like, is that why you're not wearing hijab? So um, it, it was important for me not to have it. And I always looked at it as a tool of oppression. As soon as I was out of Iran, no hijab ever. Uh, but it is it is funny how these things stay with you. I remember um, I had been in the States for about four years at that point. I was going to work early in the morning, so I, I did, still didn't have my coffee. I was not fully awake. I was just driving. And um, at the side of the street, I see this woman walking with her back toward me. And she had long black hair and a long black dress. And for a split second, for a split second, my mind, my mind was like, why is she not wearing a scarf? And then I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the States. Um, so it, it, it stays with you. I did have nightmares about um, the women that stood in front of our university. And believe it or not, there's people whose job is to check your closing. So there was at every university, there's a person um, who, um, usually stationed around the door and they will look at the female student's clothing. And if your clothing is not proper, they can stop you from entering the university. You can miss classes, you can miss exams. And I remember I had a nightmare about this person because 
it's so humiliating to experience that. Of course, there's cases of arrest. We have morality police that really just their job is like, um, just like going around in public and stop women who, who are not dressed properly and arrest them. And then something like case of Mahsa Amini happens that, you know, puts the country on fire that we are we are fed up with this and we are done with this. You are speaking from states right now and you are safe. But if you want to go back, visit your uh, relatives, I'm sure you're concerned about their safety. Yes. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, um, everyone. And I, and I know for a lot of Iranians, they keep quiet because they want to go back to Iran and they worried about family and friends and Islamic Republic is ruthless. Uh, but this is what I say to people also. Um, one is if everybody speaks up, they can't arrest everybody. The more people speak up, the less danger it would be for people. Um, and the second is like, for how long are we going to, you know, go through this humiliation without doing anything? Um, I think the, the Kurdish people got it right. Uh, the Mahsa Amini, who was actually killed, uh, she was Kurdish. So when her funeral happens, Kurdish people come to street. And the first thing they say is like, killed for a whale, how much more humiliation are we going to take? And I think that is kind of changed Iranians. It's like, how much more? Like, you know, die once, but don't grow like a gradual death every day. And yes, I am worried about my family. I, you know, I, I really want to go home and like, and uh, hug my grandmother. She's 95 years old, but it's not possible at this point. I interviewed your friend Yasmin Mohammad earlier, uh, who blamed Western activists for empowering radical Islam uh, mm-hmm. everywhere, not only in Iran, but Middle East and uh, at other parts. So why are many of you upset with the Western liberals? <sighs> yeah, um, it's heartbreaking to say, to look at Western women wear hijab and promote it as a token of diversity. There are two aspects to this, I would say. First of all, like, you know, the Western women say, my body, my choice, right? Mm -hmm. So my body, my choice for Iranian women too, right? We want to have our choice. So when we see uh, Westerners going to Iran and they are, especially the politicians, they, they wear the hijab and they, you know, smile at these Iranian officials who are meeting with wearing this symbol of oppression, that's heartbreaking for us because we are fighting for this. Women of Iran are just risking their lives to fight for this and seeing that this is not recognized by Western women is heartbreaking. But there's also a second aspect here. And this is, that's something that really gets me is like, how can not an outsider look at the concept of hijab and not recognize it for a misogynistic concept. Why does a woman needs to cover their hair? And for me, it is very strange that a, you know a, somebody who brought who was brought up in a free society could look at this and not realize that there is something unbalanced um, between men and women with this concept. That's going to bring out. Um, you know, uh, empowering issues, because then as a woman, you feel belittled, you feel that you you don't matter. 
in the society, you are a lighter um, uh, weight, I would say. So that's going to add up to an power inequality between men and women. And I expect the Westerners to be able to see that. But it's it's heartbreaking that the that Western feminists either don't see it or for some other reasons, they want to just gloss over it and say, no, that's okay. It's their culture and, you know, it's their religion. I'm not going to even give an opinion there and even encourage that says, oh, yeah, this is empowering women. Sorry, no. I, <laughs> no, definitely not. As a person who lived inside it, uh, I would say this is, this is not good for women in, in the world in general. Elna says what the people want in Iran is a change in the kind of regime that dictates how they live. She says they want the dictatorship of the clerics to come to an end and a change in the constitution to allow that. If people continue uh, keeping at the protests, eventually we are going to get there. Uh, it might take a while. Um, it's really hard to predict a revolution. Um, but that's the goal, and I think, um, and I think the new generation really wants the separation of church and state. Uh, so that's where they're gonna go. And you know, this is why I keep um, telling people. There was a friend who was telling me that, oh, what if, you know, they go and somebody else comes in that maybe they open up a hijab and they give some social freedoms, but it's still continue with the same concepts of not being transparent. And my answer to that is like, democracy requires people's awareness all the time. It's not just voting. You have to pay attention. You have to have an open media. You have to be able to criticize. And it doesn't matter if it's this government or the next government, as long as we continue criticizing, as long as we, we are able to come to the street and peacefully protest when there is something incorrect and wrong, then we have the ability to correct uh, our past moving forward and have a government that actually cares about people of Iran as opposed to being um, following its own agenda in terms of like keeping an ideology alive. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe, and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas, and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast at timesinternet.in.